Lord, we come to you this fourth Sunday of Advent in a spirit of self-reflection as we continue to wait in the darkness for your light to come. Give us unwavering faith, sure hope, and perfect love as we wait in anticipation for you. Father, there are many of us here struggling to maintain hope as we hear of the thousands of civilians being killed in Aleppo. As we reflect on the violence and evil in the world, we cry out to you to make things right and to drive out death's dark shadows. Lord, there are others of us that are battling the depression that comes with shorter days and a culture that promotes materialism and acquisition over kindness and generosity. This time of year can feel especially lonely for those who are disconnected from family. And so we ask that in your mercy, you will grant us love, deep connection, and a sense of belonging. Father, we continue to pray for Taryn McLean as she awaits surgery to repair her torn ACL. We lift up Bill Lee, Suzanne Hassel, and Mary Baldridge's mother as they endure cancer treatments, tests, and follow-up appointments. We pray for Debbie Geick's father, who was recently in a car accident, and for her mother, who fell and fractured her arm last week. Lord, have mercy on the Geick family during this stressful season of caring for parents. We continue to pray for comfort and peace to be upon the Johnson family following the death of Trevetta's father. For Gatlinburg and the surrounding areas, we ask for restoration. And lastly, Lord, we pray for this mixed-up world that feels like heaven to some and hell to others. We intercede on behalf of the city and the people of Aleppo. Grant the civilians courage to endure each next moment, and grant the leaders of the nations wisdom and courage to act against injustice. Guide us, too, on how we might best serve our Syrian neighbors, and grant us faith to believe that it it is possible to live victoriously even in the midst of this broken world. We love you, Lord, and it is with gratitude that we can ask all these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I'll be reading from John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. And the Word became flesh. And dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we have been spending this Advent in the great cathedral of John's prologue, the opening part of his gospel, and we've commented that the, the other gospels often feel kind of busy, kind of 
hurried, very active, but John's gospel is much more contemplative. It's more mystical. And it might be because of John's age. Uh, John, tradition says, is about 90 now. He's writing many years after the other gospel writers. And you just, you just kind of get the sense of this elderly saint who just adores Jesus Christ. And he's at a place in his life, perhaps, where he doesn't have a lot more energy to do all the things he's done earlier. He's known as John the Evangelist. He was a very effective missionary. But now he seems to just enjoy being in the presence of Christ. As a matter of fact, when he opens the book of Revelation, he says, I was in the spirit on the island of Patmos in the Lord's day. And I've always wondered what, wonder what that was like. Um, but he, he has turned aging into a monastic experience, which I think gives those of us that uh, are growing older uh, perhaps a, a vision for one of the gifts of the later years. Uh, it's a wonderful opportunity to draw close to Christ. So, what, what happens in John when he does this? Um, that's something I've just been thinking a lot about uh, this Advent, is what is the effect of this contemplation on John? Of course, we know he goes, tradition says, he went on to uh, nearly escape a martyr's death. Um, and he became one of the first saints in the church, and he was one of the founding apostles. And so he lived a very active, fruitful ministry. But it all seems to flow out of this contemplative, mystical encounter with the living Christ. And I, I read a, a little story this week that reminded me of, uh, of I think, what might have happened with John. It was a, a letter written by Bill Bright. Bill Bright was the founder of a movement called Campus Crusade for Christ. And the letter begins like this. It was written just before he died, about 10 years ago. Dear friends, in 1947, I had a very unique, life-changing experience with the Holy Spirit. It happened in a little cottage at Forest Home, California. Dr. Henrietta Mears, Lou Evans Jr., Dick Calverson, and I were forever changed when the Holy Spirit came upon us in a supernatural way. I really did not know who the Holy Spirit was at that time. For each of us, it was a divine, supernatural encounter with God. Out of that experience, before the night was over, we formed what we called the Fellowship of the Burning Heart. A few paragraphs later, he concludes, Out of that Movement, God gave birth to many wonderful things. Dick Calverson went on to become chaplain of the U.S. Senate. Dr. Louis Evans had a great ministry in the Presbyterian Church. Dr. Mears became one of the most influential Christian educators in the 20th century. And God graciously gave me the vision, which was, in a sense, born that night, the vision for Campus Crusade for Christ. So Dr. Bright has this encounter with the living Christ, this encounter with the Holy Spirit, And out of it, his heart is ignited with love. And he and his friends form the fellowship of the burning heart. And I like to think of John as one of the charter members of the fellowship of the burning heart. Uh, His whole life and ministry seems to 
uh, just, just spill over with this passionate love affair he has with our Lord. He calls himself the beloved disciple. He's the only uh, apostle that has a, a scene of the Last Supper in his gospel, and he has him lying on the chest of the Lord. So this is a man who is deeply in love with Jesus Christ. He's part of the fellowship of the burning heart. Well, this January we're going to start a series called Do Justice. We're going to take that famous command from Micah 6.8 and ask, what can the Hebrew prophets teach us about pursuing justice in our community? And one of the reasons I wanted to spend Advent in John's prologue was before you can go out and do justice or do whatever it is God calls you to love in the world, there has to be this prior love affair with Jesus Christ. There needs to be a a burning heart, a connection with Christ. Well, how how do you get there? How how do you get to where John got at the end of his life? How, How do you join the fellowship of the burning heart? Well, I think in part, you do what John seems to have spent the last years of his life doing. You spend time in awe and wonder, gazing upon the beloved. There's a little gospel story that indicates this in some way. It's the famous one about the Emmaus Road where the disciples have Jesus to dinner, the risen Christ, and they haven't met him yet. And they have this incredible dinner where their guest opens up the scriptures to him and he leaves and then their eyes are open and they realize who it was and they say, were not our hearts burning within us while he was with us? So the way you join the fellowship of the burning heart is you spend time falling in love with Jesus Christ. And I think this prologue, it's kind of like an overture to the whole gospel. Everything he covers in the gospel is in the prologue. This is sort of John's summary at 90 of everything he knows and loves about Jesus. And he begins with those wonderful words, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That is the Christmas story in 30 words. Ah. Uh, And it's perfect for Christmas Eve, and that's what we'll talk about that night for a few moments. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. John the Baptist, remember, the John who writes the Gospels different than John the Baptist. John the Baptist wasn't an apostle. John the Baptist was the last prophet of the Old Testament, and and you remember, if you got to see the wonderful story of uh, unusual tale of Joseph and Mary's baby, you remember that their relationship began as cousins when John the Baptist in his mother's womb met Jesus in his mother's womb, and he leaps for joy. So they have this deep connection from early in their life, and we don't know, I wish we knew, but we don't know what the cousin's relationship was like. But somehow John keeps a connection to Christ. John falls in love with Christ. And when he explodes on the scene, uh, as Christ begins his ministry, he he just says these wonderful things as he points to Christ and calls people to, to follow him. And John says that John the Baptist became a witness for Christ. And the Greek word is martyr or martyrios from which we get our word martyr, which which was someone who gives his or her life for the gospel. And remember, John the Baptist 
you know, was a prophet. He lived in the desert. He wore funky clothes, but he was no dummy. And he knew exactly what he was doing. If you went out to this River Jordan and started to proclaim that a new king of the Jews had been born a few miles away from Herod's castle, you knew where things were going to go. So essentially, he was signing his own death sentence when he decided that he's opened his mouth and witnessed for Christ. And, and I think if, if we wonder, what was it about John the Baptist that gave him such boldness and courage? It was his, his total consecration to witness for Christ, to devote himself to Christ, to yield fully to Christ, even to the point of laying down his own life. If John the Baptist was a member of the Fellowship of the Burning Heart, and I would say that he was, it started with his willingness to die. When I read this letter by Bill Bright, I was interested in, in kind of where it came from, and I dug around a little bit, and Forest Home is a Christian conference center in Southern California. I think it's still there. It was there when I was in seminary out there. And um, they often have speakers who come in during the evening, and they, they did in the 40s as well. And Henrietta Mears, many of you have probably not heard of her, but she was a very famous uh, speaker and teacher in the 40s and 50s and 60s and had this enormous college ministry that a lot of people, Billy Graham and others, were affected by. And when I was in seminary, she was a kind of a very famous person and a great speaker. And she had given a talk called The Expendable Life. And evidently... Um, the term an expendable was used during World War II for soldiers who were going into the most dangerous fields knowing that they would not return. And if you signed up for that, you were called an expendable. And of course, this is right after the war has ended. Many uh, soldiers and GIs were probably in the audience. And she had asked the group that night, will you be an expendable for Christ? Are you willing to lay down your life for the sake of loving others for Christ? And so, as the story goes, after the, the, the talk, she got in the cabin with these uh, three other brothers, and they began to have an honest discussion about being expendable for Christ. And they went around the room and they said, Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to say to Christ, I entirely yield every dream I have, every vision I have, every need I have. I put it on the altar right now, and I will go wherever you tell me to go. I will say whatever you tell me to say. I will sell whatever you tell me to sell. I'm willing to be a martyr. And after that, she prayed for them, and that's when the Holy Holy Spirit fell on their hearts like fire on an altar. And I I do think that is one of the the places where the, the burning heart begins. It's with that consecrated heart where where I say, you say. It's all yours. Everything I have, every dream I have, it's all yours. 
Romans 12.1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. That's how it happened. And they crawled up on the altar and presented themselves as a holy sacrifice. So one of the things you might ask yourself as, as we approach Advent we always need to remember that the first coming needs to be seen in light of the second coming. The Christ comes into the major as a child to rule. He is Christ the King. And so one of the things I, I want you to ask tonight, if your heart is the symbol of a manger... Are you really willing for him to dwell fully in your life? I mean, fully. Even if it means some of the things you've always wanted, you don't get. And even if it means you get started on an adventure that you never asked for and never dreamed of, Are you willing? I think that's where the journey towards the burning heart begins. Now, it's, it's interesting in, in reading a little bit more about this story. Um, I, they must have been very young at this point, and they're very zealous. And guess what the first thing they do is? And he's very cautious in his writing. I would have loved to have been there and known what actually, how he knew the Holy Spirit felt like that. He doesn't say... They were very moved, so they stay up late in the night. What's the first thing they do once they've had this filling of the Spirit, baptism of the Spirit, whatever you want to call it? The first thing they do is make up a list of rules about all the things they will do to please God. They decide, we're going to pray an hour a day. They call it a contract. I contract with, they wrote it all down, to pray an hour a day, to witness to one person a day, and, and on and on and on. And many years later, about 60 years later, Dr. Bright looks back and he says, we made an impossible list of do's and don'ts to keep, and it wasn't long before we violated them all. We were willing to pay the price, but soon most of us had broken those standards and had failed to measure up to our high resolve. We all began living under a cloud. We found ourselves feeling guilty because we'd broken our agreement with God. We'd begun to operate in the energy of the flesh in order to fulfill the work of the Spirit, and it doesn't work that way. The failure to keep all our own rules 100% discouraged us and destroyed our effectiveness. <laughs> it happens so often in the Christian life. We get all excited, we're moved, we want to please God, and the next thing we do is we make all these resolutions and commitments, and they don't work. Now, John is 90, and he's been there, done that, and he's looking back at his life, and he's remembering his Lord, and he doesn't say, and I kept all his laws Nowhere in the Gospel of John is that what he remembers. Here's what he remembers. From his fullness, we have received grace upon grace. 
At the end, the only thing he can remember is grace. And grace upon grace was kind of a, a way of saying it, that grace piled upon grace, piled upon grace from the fullness of the inexhaustible supply of grace. All he knows at the end of his life is the fullness of grace. He's not looking back and all the things that he'd done wrong. And that's all he knows is grace. And so he calls himself the beloved disciple. This tendency to go back under the law when the Spirit has quickened us and filled us is a very human one. It's what the book of Galatians is about. Um, and it's actually kind of what has happened to God's people over the, the centuries. Look at the next line. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The law was given to the people of God. It was a good gift. The law shows us how to live for God, but it's not enough. Jesus brings in a new covenant. The prophet said this covenant gave the Holy Spirit to empower us to keep the law. Grace is the Holy Spirit. We forget that. God prophesies through Ezekiel, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you and I'll cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey all my rules. And that's what Dr. Bright learns, interestingly, 60 years later as he reflects back. He kind of laughs about his mistakes. And then he says, since then I've realized that placing Jesus Christ at the center of my life and claiming the power of the Holy Spirit To live and witness for him is the only way I can live supernaturally. (laughs) The new covenant, the covenant of grace, is the covenant of the Spirit. You know, in the old covenant, God's presence dwelt in the temple. And to mark that, God lit a fire on the altar. It's called the altar of the burnt sacrifice. He lit it, and then he commands uh, the priests to keep it lit at all times. Well, in the New Covenant, you and I, and our church is the temple, and the Holy Spirit comes into our life, often called a fiery spirit. He baptizes in the, fire, in the Spirit and with fire. And in a similar way, we are to keep the fire alive on the altar. Because the fire can ebb and flow and go out. The Spirit doesn't go away. But the embers can get very cold. So what's the fire like in your heart tonight? How hot is it? This new covenant is marked by grace and truth. It's marked by the law as well. And if we're talking about different ways that we join the fellowship of the burning heart. If we're asking, how was it that John cultivated this burning heart? It was because he knew the Spirit so deeply. John talks more about the Spirit than anybody else. But he also had this wonderful relationship with the Word of God that just stirred in his heart and ignited his soul. There's a wonderful story about John Wesley. Uh, uh, and He was walking uh, down a street in London, and uh, this was a time when he was in seminary studies and he was very uh, perplexed and confused about God. And later he would say he was not yet a believer. 
and he was walking down a, a street, I believe it was Aldersgate, and he, he sees a, a meeting going on in a room, and he goes in and he stands in the back, and I know this doesn't sound very exciting, but someone was reading from Martin Luther's commentary on the book of Romans, from the preface, the introduction. He wasn't even into the first chapter yet. And the preface is this wonderful description of how God saves us through Christ on the cross. It's a wonderful description of justification by faith. And John Wesley, who's, I think at this point, already been a missionary in Georgia and failed, and come back and wondered, where's the power? What happened? Is overcome by the Holy Spirit, becomes a follower of Jesus Christ, and starts one of the greatest revivals and missions movements in the history of the world. And his memoirs, he said, that night my heart was strangely warmed by the truth. The word of God can ignite our hearts as well. Well, the last verse here. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. And again, remember the overture is kind of the summary of everything. So in a way, this is the aged John's last thought about Jesus. And this is really what his whole book will be about. And his last thought is first that Jesus is at the Father's side. And the Greek is very odd and hard to translate. And it literally says, He is within the bosom of the Father. And so John can already see the Trinity. He he sees that Jesus is the very God of very God, but he also sees that his soul is woven within the identity of the Father. It's It's a beautiful image. Somehow John knew that from being with Jesus. But then he says, he makes him known, and the Greek word there is exegete, uh, that Jesus exegeted the Father. When I was in seminary, we took two semesters uh, called Greek exegesis, and the, the, the word means to explain, to interpret, and you learned how to exegete the scriptures. You learned how to bring forth the meaning of the scriptures, and the rabbis talked about exegeting Torah to reveal God. Sometimes a word meant to... De- to reveal divine mysteries. And so John is saying, I know everybody for centuries you've been exegeting the Torah, but here's the one who himself is the exegesis of God. He has fully explained and revealed what God is like. And I know sometimes we read the Old Testament, we don't always understand all the things in there. Maybe there's other things about Christianity that we don't understand. All you really need to understand is when you look at Jesus, you look at God. Now, on the way home from Georgia, um, Wesley was in a boat. And if I remember my history, this before the Aldersgate encounter. And he'd come down to save all the heathens in America. That's how Britain thought of us at that point. And uh, he failed. He was a failed missionary. 
and he was very discouraged. And somewhere in the Atlantic, the boat got into a tremendous storm, and everybody was panicking. He was terrified. He thought he was sure he was dying, except for there was this one group of crazy people. And as the sailors were running around and they were you know, getting the lifeboats and all that stuff, this group of crazy people gets together on the deck and they start singing hymns. And Wesley, uh, eventually the storm stops and he goes to these people and he says, who are you and why are you singing? And they were a, a group called the Moravians. And they had, st- they had come over to do missions work as well And just real briefly, they had come from a village called Herrnhut, uh, kind of in the Scandinavian area, roughly northern Germany. And Count Nicholas von Zinzendorf, in the 18th century, had looked around him and said, the light has gone out on Christianity. It has become legalistic and wooden and dead. And He went and studied under a guy named Jacob Spainer, the founder of a movement called Pietism. And he had an encounter with the Holy Spirit in which his heart caught on fire. And the Count, this was during the great religious wars, and the Count went out and started a village in Herrnhut where all the refugees from all the different denominations could live together in peace and harmony. Is that cool? That's cool. And you remember, today, you know, we might kind of not get along real well with somebody who's different. Back then, they burned you. I mean, this was a, like a big deal uh, to cross denominational lines. And so he puts them all into Heron Hut, and they get along fine for a while. Guess what happens? It all goes to pot. And Count Zinzendorf calls them all together, brings them into a chapel, and he says, guys, this is falling apart. We're going to fast and pray until we reconcile. And they do. And they work through their differences. And then what historians call the Moravian Pentecost happens. And the Holy Spirit falls on that community. And their hearts catch on fire. And uh, as Ace will tell you, some of the greatest hymnody in the history of the Christian church came out of that revival. And it's beautiful, beautiful songs about a burning heart. That night, the very night of the revival, they started a 100-year prayer relay where they prayed every hour, 24 hours a day, for 100 years. And out of that prayer relay started much of the modern missions movement. At this point, believe it or not, people thought you either were damned or you weren't, and so why, you know, why get sweaty in Barbados? So nobody went. And as they're praying, they have a vision for modern missions. And they decide, I got an idea. Let's all go sell ourselves into slavery in the Caribbean so that we can witness to the slaves. And they did. And there are churches in the Caribbean today that started that way. It was the beginning of the modern missions movement. And it all came out of the burning heart. So I want to end with with this verse from 2 Timothy. Because I don't know about you, but my fire goes out. I think Timothy's fire had gone out. And 
2 Timothy 1.6, Paul writes him, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. So one of the ways that we join the fellowship of the burning heart, I guess, is to pray for it and to have others pray for us. Let's pray.